Well, as you turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 11 this morning, I want to take a moment to dismiss our children and our leaders upstairs for kids crew. This is for our kids who are fourth grade and under. So they'll join our leaders here at the front, or if they're already upstairs, they'll just make their way around to this east side, and they will head to our kids crew room with our leaders. We're going to be in Romans 11 today as we continue our study through the book of Romans. We're looking at a large section of Scripture today. We're considering an entire chapter together. And as we, as we read in Romans 11 today and, and dig into this text, I, I think you'll understand why. A lot of it has to do with the fact that, that there is, there's a, a big picture here that is, that is being presented to us. And so in order to rightly understand Romans 11, we need to see that. We need to see that big picture. Now, I'll just tell you this up front, that Romans 11 is a really difficult passage. And in, in fact, from Romans 9 to Romans 11, we have, we have this big picture that's presented to us and, and asking some, some really significant questions, and it's difficult. A lot, of, a lot of Bible teachers will avoid the book of Romans and teaching through the book of Romans largely because of the difficulty of wrestling with Romans 9 and Romans 11, or really from Romans 9 to 11. I, even for years, have thought, yeah, I want to teach through Romans someday, but I wasn't in any hurry to do it. It wasn't at the top of the list of things I was going to teach. And if I'm being honest, a lot of that has to do with Romans. Romans 9 through Romans 11, because these are, there are some big picture questions that are being posed here. Nonetheless, they're, they're really important questions, really important questions for us to consider, and, and we can identify with them on a personal level, even though a big part of, the, of, of what I'm talking about, and you'll see as we dig into the text this morning, has to do with this ultimate question of Israel, and what is God going to do with Israel and, and God's election as His election is made known through His work in the lives of His people, Israel. And, and so we'll wrestle with some of that today as we read through Romans chapter 11. But here's, here's the real question that, that I want us to consider, because it's, the, it's right out of the gate in Romans 11.1, 1, Paul asks this question, and in context, what he's doing by asking a question is he's reaching back to what we've been studying now for weeks and, and really even months from Romans chapter 9 to now. He's asking this big question, has God failed somehow? And that's an important question for us to consider, isn't it? And you may think to yourself immediately, well, no, God couldn't fail. And yet, consider this for a minute. As, as Paul has been writing about what God is doing in the life of, of the Israelites, or, or the Jews more specifically, as, as Paul's been writing about God's unfolding work in the lives of his people, what we see is that God's own people have failed to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And, and so it's, it's an important question. If God sent Jesus to his own people and yet his own people rejected Jesus, then that, does that mean somehow that God has, has failed? Does it mean that there's this shortcoming? Well, no, as we're going to see in Romans chapter 11, he, he answers that question rather specifically and rather poignantly by addressing how all of this is working together. But that's an important question even for us to think about, because when we think about our lives, isn't it true that sometimes 
God doesn't meet our expectations of him? Isn't it true that there are times when the circumstances of life, the things that we encounter, the things that we're up against, to us don't seem fair or to us don't seem right? Haven't we... Haven't most of us been in the position before, I dare say probably all of us, if we're really being honest, where, when at some point in life we have wrestled with this basic question of why God has this happened? And, and the, the, the premise, the, 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 I suppose we could say what's presuppositional to that question is the idea somehow that if things aren't the way that I want them to be, then is it fair? If I encounter things in this life, if the things that I'm up against, if the things that, that have happened to me don't match with what I want them to be or what I've expected them to be, when we, when we wrestle against those unmet expectations, then we wrestle against the question of, God, are, are you good? Is God fair? Can he be trusted? And although you may never have formed it into words that feel to you like doubt or disbelief, We've probably all been in a place or a season of life where we've agreed that I don't like this and I don't, this isn't what I want and this isn't what I would choose. And yet if we persevere, even in the midst of those seasons, then we're living by faith. Really, that's where faith comes to bear, isn't it? That's where, that's where we really see faith lived out most importantly is not when we get what we want, but when we don't get what we want. Where faith really becomes obvious and evident in our lives is when we lean into God in spite of the fact that life and its circumstances don't fit what we would choose. And what Paul is pointing to here, though it's speaking specifically about this big picture idea, this high theological understanding of God's work of salvation in the lives of his of his people, Israel. Really what we see is that all of this fits under this umbrella for us of understanding how it is that we are to walk by faith even when we encounter difficulty. And so I want us to see together in Romans 11. That's a lot of setup, I realize, for this chapter, but it's an important chapter. And even as we begin to read, you'll, you'll see that it is, uh, it's difficult at, at certain points to wrestle with. Now, oftentimes when, when I preach, what I do is I start by giving an overview of the entire passage that we're going to look at, and I'll read through an entire text, and then we'll go back and we'll break it down. But this morning, I'm going to approach things a little bit differently. I'm going to, I'm going to read through the text as I make each one of the points, because I want you to see, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I want you to see the, the movement there in, in a sense, there's a movement or, or sort of an unfolding understanding that works its way through the text this morning. And so I want us to see that together as we work our way through. So we're going to start in Romans 11. We're going to start reading in verse 1 and read verses 1 through 10 in a moment. But first, let's, let's consider the point, because what we see here in this picture of what's happening is God's faithfulness on display. Because the question, even in verse 1, is essentially, has God rejected his people? In other words, has God, has God failed somehow to fulfill his promise? Because Israel were God's chosen people. But what we see in these first 10 verses is know that God has been faithful to fulfill his promise. 
And I want you to understand that just as God was faithful to fulfill his promise to his people, he's faithful to fulfill his promises in our lives as well. He's faithful to his word, faithful to his promise, faithful to us in every stage, in every season. So that's the first point I want us to see. We serve a God who is faithful to fulfill. In other words, God is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his promise. And so we can trust him even in life's uncertainties, knowing that he is faithful to fulfill. God will remain faithful to his word, faithful to his promise. And so let's read Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And here's the answer, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it was written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, this is the, the point that I, I want you to understand in these first 10 verses, because Paul begins, he begins wrapping up this section that, again, it's just, this began really in Romans 9, and it's worked its way through these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And, and he's beginning the summation of this argument of how God is working and how God has not abandoned his people. He has not abandoned his promise in spite of their rejection. He, he begins to to wrap this all up by asking the important question. Has God rejected his people? Has God gone back on his word? Has he rejected his promise? And the answer is plainly here, by no means. God has not rejected. And, and then Paul offers a couple of points of, uh, to, if you will, to give support to that argument. And in fact, he says, first of all, look at me. Look at my life, Paul says. I'm a Jew, and then he, he talks about his own heritage, his own lineage, right? He says that I am a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm a Jew. How is it that I, a Jew, could come to faith if God has somehow been unfaithful to his promise? No, God is faithful to his word. And then he points again to Elijah as another example. Now, if you remember the story of Elijah... Elijah served God faithfully. Elijah took a stand against a wicked king and a wicked queen, uh, against many, in, in fact, hundreds of false prophets. And, and, and Elijah stood for God. He stood for God's word. I think, personally, Elijah is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. I, I suppose that's open to some, some uh, 
some debate, uh, but when I read the Old Testament, I'm, I'm so inspired by the faith and the, and the power of Isaiah, I mean, excuse me, of Elijah's work. And yet, it's interesting that what we see even in the life of Elijah is that in spite of what God was doing, there are these moments of vulnerability with Elijah. And I can identify with that because in spite of all that I've seen God do in my own life, there are times when, when I struggle. There are times when, when I, I look to life and, it's, and, and what's happening and, and I struggle, I wrestle against that. I suppose you probably can identify with that as well. Most of us can, I think. And he uses the example of Elijah. Elijah became so discouraged, so despondent, that he cried out to God in prayer. And God's answer to him was, Elijah, you don't see everything that I'm doing. And you don't understand everything that's happening. Elijah said, God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who honors you. I'm the only one who is faithful to you. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, man, I'm the only one. All these people and all these things that are happening. I'm the only one in my class. I'm the only one in my school. I'm the only one at my work. I'm the only one in my, in my neighborhood. I'm the only one in my family. Do you ever feel like that? And God's word to Elijah was, oh, oh, but Elijah, you're not. In fact, God goes on to say, there are 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and I'm preserving them as a remnant. And I think God's word to us similarly would be today, my child, I've got this. You're not alone. I'm doing something here. Trust me. Walk by faith. Lean into me. Follow me. Paul is saying specifically here is that in, in response to this question, has God somehow rejected his people? Has God not fulfilled his word? No, the, an- the answer is God is faithful to his word, faithful to his promise. Because if God weren't faithful to his promise, then, then there wouldn't be any believing Jews in the church in Rome to begin with. Paul says, look at me. Look at yourselves, he might even say. Look to the example of Elijah. These are all lessons that remind us that even when life seems bleak and things seem dim, God is at work and God is faithful to his promise because he's faithful to fulfill. I love how Paul writes it elsewhere in one of his letters to Timothy that he writes that God will remain faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. That's so powerful and so true. We serve a God who is faithful to fulfill, faithful to his promise. Now, let's understand clearly as it applies to our lives, that doesn't mean that God's going to give you everything that you want because God never promised to give you everything that you want. Plainly, he didn't. But what he has promised is that he will always work in a way that is for his glory and our good. And so as we trust God, as we lean into him, we can trust that he's working in a way to fulfill his promise, to fulfill his word, to bring salvation to the lost, that ultimately Jesus would be, would be honored and exalted. The second thing that we see in this passage in Romans is that God is sovereign over salvation. Now, let me just say up front, what we're about to dig into is this is a part of where it gets really difficult. And there are some, there are some deep theological things to consider in the verses that follow. And, and I'll be honest with you, we're really only going to scratch the surface of these today because I'm, I'm, we're going to focus on, on its application, the application of this truth 
to our lives, more so than all the nuanced theological arguments and the fine detail of what's taking place here. But we are going to look at some of it, and we are going to ask some of the important questions, but it's really just going to scratch the surface of, of what's happening here, because the important application that we see is that God is sovereign over salvation, meaning that God is mighty to save. And everyone who turns to the Lord in faith, we saw a, but a chapter ago in Romans 10, 13, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. God is faithful to save all of those who turn to him in faith. And God will be faithful to save us if we will look to him, if we will submit our lives to him. God is sovereign over salvation, but that's not only true for us, it's true over his covenant promise with his people, Israel, as well. So let's keep reading Romans chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 11, and we're going to read all the way through verse 32, okay? So stay with me here. I'm going to cover a lot of ground. Romans 11, 11, all the way through verse 32. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Now, before we continue, notice the pattern. There's a pattern here again in verse 11 that is similar to the pattern that we saw in verse 1. The questions themselves are are different. But again, this pattern is important because what he's doing is he's wrapping up, he's concluding, he's summarizing the argument that he's been making over the course of several chapters now. And, And a second part of this big picture, big theological question is, did somehow, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did God foreordain, did he, did he design that Israel should stumble and fall if you are reformed in your theology? This would be the picture of supralapsarianism, okay? If you have no idea what that means, then just live in bliss, right? Go on, because it's a big word, and I'm not even going to try to spell it for you. But the idea here is this picture of, did God foreordain, did he create a certain people only that he might then pour out his wrath and his punishment on them. And I think what I think what Paul is saying is, no, that's not the way that it worked. But God is working in spite of, in spite of their stumblings. He's working in spite of all that they've gone through to remain faithful to his word and his promise. Okay? Let's keep reading verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Big picture things here. We'll come back and and explain all of this in a minute. Verse 24, for if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, All Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Wow, what a lot, what a, lot. What a, what a, a, a mouthful and, 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 a, and a heavy thing to consider here. Let's, let's unpack th- what's taking place. There's some drama. There's some theological, historical drama that is, that is being laid out in these verses. And, and it's important that we understand this. But again, remember the big picture issue here is that God is sovereign over salvation. The same God who saved us from our sins saves anyone and everyone who turns to him by faith. There's no one in this world who is worthy or deserving of God's salvation. That the only people who can come to faith in Christ are those who would humble themselves and recognize their sin and their brokenness and their need for a Savior. And yet the the point that Paul's making here is that God's own chosen people have rejected this truth. Now, To put it sort of simply, this is the big picture uh, history summed up in a matter of a few sentences that Paul is, is putting together here. God revealed himself to Israel, and he made a promise to Israel. Ultimately, Israel rejected that promise. God is working through their rejection to fulfill the promise anyway. And that just as God is working through the rejection of the Israelites, the Jews, to bring about salvation to all people, namely the Gentiles, which Gentiles is just anyone who's not a Jew. So just as God is working through the rejection of his people to bring salvation to everyone, God too is going to work through the salvation of everyone to make his people jealous in order that they might turn their hearts back to him. And someday salvation will come to God's people just as he is foreordained. That's a, that's a lot of history summed up in a matter of a few sentences. But what this is, this is, again, this is the importance that you see here. God is sovereign over all of this. And this is the point that I want us to understand as it relates to our lives. There are a number of times in our lives that we, too, reject God's instruction, that we, too, reject God's direction. There are so many times that we can point to our own disobedience, and yet we see that God works even through our disobedience 
to bring about his purposes. Consider the pattern that begins in the book of Genesis. What happens with Genesis in the story of creation and the fall, that God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in a garden. He tells them to, to follow his law. They reject that law. The fall occurs, and yet in Genesis 3, there's a, there's a, a we'll call it a prophecy. There's at least a, a picture of God's salvation that is to come in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And you keep going. What is it that happens toward the end of the book of Genesis with the story of Joseph? Joseph sitting upon his position of authority, his throne of sorts, as it were, in the land of Egypt, looks at his brothers who sold him into slavery and says to them, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. And we see that pattern played out again and again and again in Scripture, that God works in spite of our sin. God works in spite of our rebellion, in spite of the ways that we mess things up, that God is still working to bring about his plan, because that's the God we serve. I had a professor in seminary who would say it this way. He would say, God can hit straight licks with crooked sticks. In other words, God's going to work through the things that you and I do to bring about his purpose, really in spite of us. And that's what Paul is saying here about this history, this unfolding drama of Israel. God called Israel to be a holy people. But along the way, by and large, they rejected that. Now, to be fair, there are some who God has preserved as a remnant. But the nation as a whole have turned their backs against God. They have rejected his, his blessing. They have rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus. They, they crucified him. And yet Paul says, but God is working through that. In spite of their disobedience, he's working to take salvation to everyone. If you go all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, in the covenant that God established with Abraham, God says to Abraham, from the beginning of his covenant with Abraham, that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's plan all along was that salvation would flow through his people to the ends of the earth. And yet, God's people turned their backs on that, on that plan. They hardened their hearts. They stiffened their necks. God worked anyway to bring salvation to us. To put it plainly, you and I wouldn't be here today unless God had worked through that. Because we're the Gentiles, right? We're, we, at least the vast majority of us, I suppose, are not ethnically Jewish. And yet here we are in a church in the middle of America some 2,000 years removed from when Paul is writing this. And we're worshiping this same Jesus. How did all of that happen? Because God is faithful to his promise in spite of his people's sins. And he's doing the same thing in our lives today. We're not a perfect church. We're not a perfect people. And yet God is still working through us. I'm not a perfect pastor. I'm not a perfect man. And yet God works through the preaching of his word. He works through the ministry of his people, through the work of his church to bring salvation to the lost because God is sovereign over salvation. You and I are far from the ideal candidates to take Jesus to the world. And yet God has chosen us He's chosen, he's chosen to work through us. And when we see that, that ought not to cause us to become prideful about ourselves. Instead, that ought to inspire humble worship. God, thank you that you would work through me in spite of my own failures. 
And that's the essence of this picture of the olive, the wild olive branch and the tree. Okay, so the picture here is of a tree that has a wild olive shoot grafted in. So there's a lot of botany there, and some of that goes beyond my understanding. But basically, a branch has been cut off, and a type of branch from another tree altogether has been grafted in. That's the, the, the picture, the illustration. Well, the, the tree, the olive tree, that's, that's Israel. The wild shoot, that's all those who weren't a part of God's chosen people, those who, who were Gentiles. And God's saying, or rather Paul's saying, that God has grafted in this wild offshoot in order that they too might be sustained by his grace. So God has brought us in, and God's going to work through us to, to someday bring salvation back to his people who become jealous of what God has done and turn their hearts back to him. Look at verse 26, particularly verse 26a. There's a, there's a really important theological point here that's buried in the midst of all. I shouldn't say buried. That makes it seem as though, so, but it's difficult, right, to understand this. 26a. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In other words, to go back to the original point, God is faithful to fulfill. God is still working to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham thousands and thousands of years ago. And he's still at work even today to bring about that promise. So even when things seem difficult, even when things seem hard, we need not give up on what God is doing, but trust him and lean into him and trust that he's working. Now, one of the finer points of theology here that we wrestle with is, what does this mean in this way, all Israel will be saved? There's really three things that that can mean. First of all, we could understand all Israel here in a nuanced manner that would say, well, really, everyone who believes is the true Israel. I don't think that's the appropriate understanding of Romans chapter 11, verse 26, in spite of the fact that in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, Paul writes that everyone who believes is a part of the circumcision. Everyone who believes is a part of the true Israel. But in the context of this particular passage here, I don't think it makes sense to, to see Israel as just anyone who comes to Jesus in faith, which then leaves two options, okay? Stay with me. I know this is, this, I told you, we're just going to scratch the surface. This is us scratching the surface on some of this, okay? So the, the, the second two options that we have to consider then are, if this is speaking about ethnic Jews, then we're left with two possibilities. Either, on the one hand, he's talking about all those who are God's people throughout the history of time. So God's elect from amongst his own people, meaning certain particular Jews who God has chosen by election who would be preserved for salvation in the end. Or could it mean then option three, a particular group of Jews at a future, at a specific future point in time who would be God's chosen people from among that generation. Now, I think, first of all, I think it's really difficult to mete out the difference between those two based on what we see here in Romans 11. But I lean toward the last option. In other words, I think the best way to understand this idea that in this way, all Israel will be saved, that doesn't mean every single Israelite, that doesn't mean every single Jew who has ever lived or even all those who are alive at a certain point in the future. In fact, if we look to 
even the book of Revelation. We read in the book of Revelation about 144,000 Jews who will be saved at the end. And, and I re- so I really think this is, in, in a sense, pointing toward that. It's pointing toward a select, elect group of people, a remnant of sorts that God will preserve to the end. And, and regardless of how we understand, we could, we could really get into some, some deep theological, you know, some, some, some history of salvation, and we can really deal with some eschatology here in the end times. And, 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 and that's fun, and that's important even at a certain point. But again, the big picture that I want you to see here that Paul's making is that God is sovereign to save anyone and everyone who turns to him in faith. What he is doing now in our lives is a part of his plan. And, and the way that he's going to use what he's doing in our lives now with what he wants to do in the future, again, that's all, it's all to God's glory. It's all for his praise. It's all pointing back to Jesus so that none of us should look to, should look to salvation and puff our chest and brag somehow, which is exactly the point if you go backward in verse 20 through about verse 24, the point that that he's making is none of us should, considering this truth, considering what God is, none of us should believe that we can just go on living in sin and we can do whatever we want. If God would punish his own people who were his elect people, then we better be, we better understand that God will punish us too if we wander off in sin. If if God, if God would, would not spare his own people, but allow them to suffer the consequences of their sin, he'll do the same in our lives as well. But the same God who saves us is sovereign over salvation. That's, that's deep, and that's weighty, and that's heavy, but I want you to see how glorious it is too, because when we really begin to understand that, then we really, when we understand the, the depths of all of this, and the depth and the weight of that, then it, it helps us to see the heights of what come in the following verses, because he finishes this chapter then with what theologians refer to as a doxology, a doxology, a hymn of praise to close all of this out. And that really points us to the third thing that I want us to see, is that in all of this, God is worthy of worship. The God who is faithful to fulfill his word and his promise, the God who is sovereign over salvation and has been working all along to bring people to faith in his Savior, Jesus, is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all that we have. He's worthy of us laying down our lives before him, offering ourselves to him in humble submission. You see, worship is ultimately about sacrifice. Now, I don't want to go too far into that because that's going to be my sermon next week when we get into Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Worship is all about sacrifice. It's about us bringing our lives as a sacrifice of praise to God. But the main point I want you to see here is God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our all. He's worthy of our sacrifice, worthy of our surrender, because he is high and exalted over all things. Let's keep reading Romans 11 in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Praise God that he is worthy of our worship. He is deserving of our praise. He stands as the only one 
who can sustain the praise, the, the true offering of our lives, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, Paul writes. Do you see in all of this the depth, the power, the, the magnificence of God who's been working from the beginning to fulfill his promise to the end? And that's what God is doing in your life as well. Even when you encounter hardship and difficulty, even when we come up against the troubles, the trials, the tribulations that we face in this life, remember that God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to fulfill his promise. He is sovereign to save everyone who turns to him in faith. And he's worthy of our worship. I love the way that verse 36 framed this. From him and through him and to him are all things. Now think about, think about those prepositions for a moment, right? From and through and to. I think that's a, pretty, that's a pretty simple way of saying everything is for his glory. Everything is for his glory. From and through and to him are all things. Everything is for God's glory. And so the response of our lives ought to be to surrender all that we have to him. He's worthy of our worship. And I want you to hear this today, that this same Jesus that we sing about, this same Jesus that Paul writes about, this same Jesus that we trust for salvation is worthy of everything, all that we have, that we might lay our lives down before him as a true sacrifice, as a true symbol of our worship, that we would say, God, you're worthy of it all. I submit myself to you. I sacrifice everything. God, I surrender all that I am to follow you, believing that you're worthy of my worship. Would you be willing today to surrender all that you have to Jesus, to sacrifice everything? That's what, that's what it means, I think, to, to respond to him in worship. It's the picture of lordship. There's been a lot that has gone on this week in, in history with England and the death of Queen Elizabeth and the coronation of a new king and all of those things that we think about, you know, all these figures, these lords. There's been a lot of talk about the, the, the king and the authority of a king and, and, and all of this. And, and when we think about that, we think about the authority of a king this morning. I, I want us to consider the authority of this king, King Jesus, who's worthy of everything who is sovereign over salvation, who's faithful to fulfill his promise, would you be willing today to sacrifice, to submit, to yield your life to him and his authority in order that you might find salvation in Christ, the one who is worthy of our, of our worship, who's worthy of it all. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response. A time, of, a time of worship, a time where we, where we invite you to respond to this truth. And even as we sing this song, the title of the song that we're going to sing is Healer. I believe you're my healer. I believe you're more than enough. Even as we sing those words today, if you are here and there's never been a moment when you've surrendered your life to Jesus by faith, then I would encourage you that you would make this the moment, this the day of your salvation, this the day that you turn to him for the forgiveness of your sin and confessing him as Lord and Savior of your life. Brad and I will be here at the front. We want nothing more than to pray with you and lead you in that act of humble submission today that you would make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. And if you've taken that step of faith, 
and God is working in your heart today and he's stirring in you, then can I encourage you that you would sing with all the, all the gusto and, 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 and out of the depth of our understanding that God is, he's everything. He is deserving of our praise, worthy of our, way, our worship. He's more than enough that we would turn to him as we surrender our lives to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you who are high and exalted over all of creation, you who are faithful to fulfill, you who are sovereign over salvation and worthy of worship, that you can be known by us as we turn to you in faith. Today, Jesus, our desire is to respond in humble obedience by offering our lives to you as our worship. Would you be exalted in us, Lord, as we, as we give everything that we have to you? We lay down our lives in worship of you. All this we pray in your name. Amen.